Well, good morning, beloved. Uh, if we haven't had the opportunity to meet, my name is Mike Rogers. I serve as one of the pastors here, and um, the ways that we have already heard God's word, uh, sung and read and prayed, have delighted my soul. <laughs> um, I am uh, grateful to be able to be here to open up God's word with you this morning and to proclaim it. So um, I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the 139th Psalm. That's Psalm 139. If you're uh, using the black Bible under the chairs near you, you'll find Psalm 139 on page 521, if you'd like to follow along there, page 521. And uh, when you find Psalm 139, I want you to notice with me the title line of the psalm. And there it says it's directed to the choir master. And as many of you know, the Psalter, this collection of the book of Psalms, was often used as the psalm book of God's people. It was used as a song book. And this title tells us that this was a poem written by David that was handed over to the skill and expertise of the choir master with the specific purpose of being put to music and sung in the gathered congregation as a hymn, just like we're gathered here this morning. So now why should we care about this title line? Well, when God's people come together to worship him corporately or all together, one of the ways that we obey the Lord in our gathering is by singing together. As we sing, not only do we praise and worship God, but simultaneously we're reminding and encouraging one another of the things that God tells us are true and good and right. So what we sing matters. What we sing when we gather matters, friends. And the songwriter or, or those that choose which songs to sing are literally putting words in the mouths of God's people. And those words are formative. In other words, they're meant to shape and form what the singer believes and feels about God and the truths that he's revealed to us. So what God's people sing when we gather matters. And just as a brief aside, I, I give thanks and praise to God for our elders and staff and all of those who participate in leading our musical worship here at First Baptist. Um, you take this task on with sober-mindedness and joy and skillfulness. Every song that we sing here, we aim for it to fit into three categories. It should be beautiful, accessible, and true. That's what we're shooting for. And you all love and serve our church family so well in this, and I'm grateful to God for that. So I say all this to say, as we read this psalm together, as I read it aloud this morning, I want you to imagine what it might have been like to hear the collective voices of the congregation gathered to sing this hymn to the Lord and to one another. Why would David have written this hymn to the Lord? 
why would he have written it specifically to be sung in the worship gathering? What truths about God is David putting into the mouths of God's people and wanting them to remind one another of as they sing? All right? So look with me now, Psalm 139, and I'll read it for us. The word of the Lord. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God bless the reading of his word. And so now, friends, back to our earlier question, right? What truths about God is David putting into the mouths of God's people here? What does he want them to remind one another of as they sang? Well, I think the overarching theme that we could hear and be reminded of throughout the psalm is God's divine ability to know all things. And specifically, to know everything about me personally, the psalmist says. It's the line that begins the psalm as an observation, 
O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And it's the lines that end the psalm as a request for the Lord to continue to search him and to know his heart. And so David is in awe of this extraordinary truth that God knows him fully and completely. Now, if you're like me, right, maybe this is only me, okay? But after reading this psalm, you might be asking yourself, is this such a good thing? I mean, is it good that God knows everything about me? Is that really about us, that he knows everything? Right, and with just a, just a brief moment of reflection, right, of ourselves and others in the world, we don't see models of holiness and righteousness and goodness and love. In fact, we see the opposite. Friends, if all the details of our actions and thoughts were displayed right now on the big screens here, if we were fully known by others in the way that the psalmist describes how God knows us, friend, we would most certainly, most certainly be completely ashamed and embarrassed and probably want to crawl into a hole and die. So when I first sat down with this text, I thought, well, I, this could be terrifying. <laughs> Anybody else kind of feeling that this morning a little bit? And so we, we're forced then, right, to wrestle with the question, is this the way we're thinking maybe, is this how God sees us? Is this how the psalmist is portraying God's knowledge of us? Many of us have a misconception of the omniscient or all-knowing God, that he's like a, a cosmic cop hovering over our shoulder, just waiting to sight us, for our sinful behavior, ready to kind of divinely zap us or drop a crushing weight of discipline for all of our wrongdoings. But beloved, children of God, I want to show you in this psalm how that couldn't be further from the truth. That's not the tone of this psalm or the intent of its author or the desire of its central subject. David wants the singers of this hymn to behold the all-knowing God. He wants us to worship and adore the God whose intimate knowledge of his people puts his glorious presence and his sovereign care on display for all to see. And so that's our first point this morning. Behold the all-knowing God. If you're taking notes, that's our first point. Behold the all-knowing God. So I want to walk us through these words that David has intentionally, again, put in the mouths of God's people and help us to see what he sees and behold the all-knowing God together this morning. So let me make some observations that I think will help us. So look again with me. Keep your Bible open. Look again with me at the first section of the psalm in verses 1 through 6. So as I mentioned earlier, the book-ended repetition of the first and the last two verses of the psalm help us to understand the overall theme that the singer longs 
for an ever-deepening relationship with the omniscient God. And although it's being sung in the congregation as a group, God knows each person lifting up their voice intimately and personally. The psalmist exclaims that the Lord has searched me and known me. He sees that God has conducted a thorough and complete investigation of him. And the psalmist concludes that he is fully known by God. But what exactly does the psalmist mean when he writes that he's known by God? Well, it doesn't mean that God simply knows stuff about him, right? This sense of the original language and just the overall sense of the tone of the hymn implies that there's so much more to it than just knowing the facts. We understand this difference, if we think about it, in our experience with the English language. So someone might ask you if you know a certain place. And you might say, yeah, yeah, I know it. Right? Or, or, or someone might ask you um, if you know a place, and, and instead of just saying that, you say, oh, yeah, oh, I know it. I know it like the back of my hand. Right? You're saying that you know it really well. It's like a part of you. Like it belongs to you. Like it's your very own hand, right? The word know used throughout this psalm has that same sense. It's a sense of possession, a sense of affection and approval. It's the sense that the one who is known is the beloved child of the Lord who the psalm is being sung to. And then the psalmist, he gives us even a fuller sense of what being searched and known by the Lord actually looks like in the following verses. So keep looking with me in verses 2 through 5. So as you just glance over those verses, what sticks out is the repetition of this expansive and contrasting language, right? Some examples, you, you sit down and rise up in verse 2. You're walking on a path and lying down in verse 3. Knowing the end of one's words before they even begin. In other words, knowing what will be said before it's even said. In verse 4, he says that he's being hemmed in by God's presence behind and before. In verse 5. And, and this shouldn't be unusual to us, right? We see this kind of expansive and contrasting language all throughout God's word, right? For example, God creates the heavens and the earth in Genesis. He casts our sins away from us as far as the east is from the west in the Psalms. He's the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end in Revelation, right? And it's the same way that you might tell your loved one, I love you to the moon and back. In other words, the psalmist, he wants us to behold the God that knows us fully and completely, from beginning to end. Friend, he knows every position and status, every mental state and emotion, every doubt and fear, every word on our tongue before we ever even speak it. He knows our disposition and our actions, whether in public or in secret. No matter how hidden they may be from other people, no matter how misunderstood, no matter how separated or estranged, God never misunderstands us. 
He never misjudges us. He never wrongly interprets us. And so this repetition of contrasting language, it shows us these things. And not only does it show us the expanse of God's knowledge, but also the expanse of the difference between God and humanity. We're doing this series on the attributes of God, right? And there are many attributes of God that we share with him in our humanity. And theologians call these communicable attributes. And in particular, those refer to the moral attributes that we share with God, such as love, goodness, kindness, things like that. However, this attribute of omniscience that we're reading about this morning, or being all-knowing, we do not share with God. This is called an incommunicable attribute. The term refers to attributes such as God's omnipotence, or his being all-powerful, or his omnipresence, which is his presence being known and felt in all places at all times, or in this case, his omniscience, all-knowing. We do not share these things with God. And so, you and I, we may veer from our path, but God continues to know us. We may sleep and forget the things of the Lord, but God never, ever slumbers or sleeps when it comes to knowing the intricacies of his creation. Friend, God knows his creation intimately. What an amazing, extraordinary God. Beloved, behold the all-knowing God with me this morning. And and this is a little bit of what's happening in verse 6. Look with me there. There's this explosion of kind of incomprehensible awe from the psalmist. He can't wrap his mind around the extent of God's knowledge or God's ability to possess it. To ponder this incommunicable attribute of God's omniscience, something so transcendent is literally out of our mental reach. It's too wonderful, too high, it's unattainable. And so we're left with awe and wonder with the psalmist. To simply behold the all-knowing God. But yet, and I love this, despite his inability to comprehend the exhaustive knowledge of the Lord, the psalmist continues his meditation and his observations as he goes on through the hymn with the following verses. Keep looking with me. Verse 7, it summarizes the reality that God's knowledge is so exhaustive that there's no physical boundary that limits it. And then verses 8 through 12, they give these poetic examples. Look with me there. As before, there's similar kind of expansive and contrasting language. In verse 8, from the heights of heaven to the depths of Sheol, or the place of the dead, God is there, the psalmist says. In verse 9, like the light from the rising sun speeding across the vast seas, Even if the psalmist could travel with that kind of speed, the speed of light, God would already be there. He'd already be there, he says, to lead him and care for him. And in verses 11 and 12, the psalmist is amazed that not even 
complete and utter darkness can keep God from being able to see and care for him. Because what we think, what we see as being dark is like the light to the Lord. There's no place that God's knowledge doesn't reach. There's no place to be hidden from God's view and his watchful care. And now to illustrate even further the extent of God's knowledge and care, even into the darkest and farthest conceivable places, the psalmist describes in verses 13 through 16 how God not only knows and sees, but is also actively at work. And what was perhaps to him the most unknown and physically dark space that he could have imagined at the time, the creation of life inside a mother's womb. And the imagery of God's watchful care for the psalmist in these verses is so loving and tender, so skillful and beautiful in the most secret, most unseeable of places, there is God. And not just watching, but working. And not just working, but working wonderfully, the psalmist says, skillfully forming, knitting together, intricately weaving a new life. And finally, just when we kind of think we've reached the final frontier of God's ability to know his beloved child, there's one step further. He goes one step further, and it's the step into the future. In verse 16, if you look there, we discover that God knows all the days of the psalmist that are to come. Not only does God know them, but he says he formed the days for the psalmist even before a single day had come to pass in his life. And so literally, from the womb to the tomb, the psalmist sees that God knows him. God is present with him. And that he is never, ever outside of God's watchful care. So beloved, child of God here this morning, Christian, brother and sister, those who have by faith entrusted the care of their souls to their gracious Savior, behold the all-knowing God with me this morning. Let this song forever be on your lips as your praise to the God who knows you fully and still calls you son or daughter because of your faith in Jesus. Live your life then knowing, trusting, believing that God knows you as his beloved child, that he is present with you throughout all of the extremes of life, from the brightest days to the darkest nights, and that every single one of your days, friend, from the womb to the tomb, are under his watchful care. Amen? And as we've said, this glorious hymn was intended for God's people to be sung by the gathered body 
of believers as a means to behold the all-knowing God and to deepen our relationship to him. And we should primarily see it and respond to it with that in mind. However, for those who are not Christians, I believe this hymn requires something of you as well. Claims about anyone or anything such as this, that God is all-knowing, that necessitates a response from all people. Either this is true of God and makes him worthy of our praise and devotion and adoration, or it's false and it's only worthy of mocking and scorn. One commentator writes that there is no higher proof of divinity than a knowledge of the secrets of people's hearts. So as you've heard already, God's omniscience, it knows no boundaries or limitations. He knows all of his creation fully and completely. And that includes every single person in God's creation. And he desires that you too, like the psalmist, would long for an ever-deepening relationship with him. One where you would be known as a beloved child, where his comforting presence would lead and hold you, where his watchful care would be ever felt and assured. And friend, God offers you that kind of relationship with him today, right now. In the New Testament gospel of John, Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one has a relationship with God except through him. The all-knowing God does indeed know every single failure that we've committed. And that's anything in our actions, our attitudes, or even in our very nature that goes against God's requirements for us. And friend, we've all woefully fallen short of God's commands. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we've seen today that God knows and sees every single one of our sinful failures. Nothing has escaped him. And so, friend, the list is long for all of us. But Paul goes on to say, Thanks be to God that even while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us in our place, taking the punishment for sin that we deserve, which is death and eternal separation from the loving relationship with God that's described here in Psalm 139. Friends, Jesus offers us the only way to being known by God as his beloved child. And it's the way of faith. To reject him is to reject the reality of his loving care for you. Another commentator writing about the overall theme of this psalm, he says this, listen, he says, like a lighthouse, this holy song, it casts a clear light and warns us against that practical atheism, which ignores the presence of God and so makes shipwreck of the soul. I implore you, friend, not to make shipwreck of your soul. When there's such a clear light 
being cast from the lighthouse of God's mercy and grace in Christ. A God that knows you and desires relationship with you. So turn from your sin. Put your faith in Jesus. Trust that his death on your behalf will save you from the righteous wrath of God and make you a part of the beloved family of God. Behold, worship, adore the all-knowing God with us. And so friends, when we come to truly behold the all-knowing God, what's the result of that? How does it affect or change the way that we interact with God, with the world, with others? Well, the rest of this psalm, as many of the psalms do, they answer these kinds of questions for us by specifically giving us an example of what it looks like for a mature Christian to live a life of faith. And this brings us to our second and our final point this morning. We will have an ever-deepening relationship with the all-knowing God when we respond to God with delight and devotion. So point two, respond to God with delight and devotion. Respond to God with delight and devotion. So look with me again at verses 17 and 18. Here, after all the previous verses where the psalmist is meditating on, beholding the extraordinary nature of God's omniscience, he exclaims, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. There's an outpouring of delight in the God who knows him. There's delight in the reality that the God of the universe has thoughts that concern him. And even more so, verse 18 suggests that God's thoughts concerning him are so vast that they're seemingly innumerable. He can't even count them. And even if he were to try to count them, I love this word picture, he shows you that he'd likely fall asleep counting because it would take so long. But even if he did fall asleep, God wouldn't abandon his beloved child. He says there in that last section, I awake and I'm still with you. Amen. Brothers and sisters, when we truly behold the all-knowing God and see his attributes clearly, as the psalmist has put it on display here, a natural response is one of joyful delight and awe. The English pastor Charles Spurgeon said of this text, God is familiar with all I do. Nothing's concealed from him, nor surprising to him nor misunderstood by him. And he says, this should fill us with awe so that we sin not, with courage so that we fear not, and with delight so that we mourn not. Spurgeon's charge here for us is it's spot on. The awe of God's knowledge of our every thought and deed should remind us, friends, that there is no overt sin worth the guilt and shame of subjecting God to its viewing. Let the reality of God's constant presence be a deterrent from our sinful habits and thoughts that we often falsely believe are done in secret. And also, beloved, 
Be of strong courage and do not fear, because God also sees and knows your confession of sin and your disposition of repentance when you've broken his laws. And we know that if we confess our sin, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, we're reminded in 1 John 1, 9. And so, believer, you do not and should not live in the fear of God's wrath. Live courageously as one who's been redeemed and forgiven. Give your life to the glory of God. Utilize and leverage all the gifts, abilities, and resources that he's blessed you with for the sake of his name. Whether you're raising children in the fear and admonition of the Lord or working your job to the best of your ability to honor the gifts he's given you or giving up the comforts of home to take the gospel to a people around the world who don't know about Jesus. Friends, throughout church history, Christians have joyfully stepped into the broken and hard places of life. Caring for the orphan, the widow, the sick and dying. Taking the gospel to the places where Jesus is not known. Bringing relief into the aftermath of natural disasters. And we can do any or all of these things and more with courage and conviction and without fear because you are known by the holy God. And he has lovingly formed every one of your days already. And even if we should be troubled in this life or perish and go on to the next, in the end of it all, friend, we will delight in the Lord. We will not be in mourning, for we will be with him. And on that day, what we've only known by faith so far, friend, we will know by sight. And in understanding God's omniscience today and delighting in it today and responding to it rightly today, we have assurance that on that final judgment day, we too will gush with delight and awe along with the psalmist in the full presence of God, exclaiming, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. And not only do we respond to God with this, with this delight, but the psalmist is also calling us uh, through the remainder of this psalm, he's showing us how we should respond to God with devotion. So we respond to God with, with delight and with devotion. So look with me again at the final verses of this psalm in 19 through 24. And notice that the psalmist is praying to God and making a request of him. So in 19 through 22, he asks God to eliminate evil in the world. And in 23 through 24, he asks God to eliminate evil in his own heart. And so taken together, the psalmist is expressing a very emotional and heartfelt desire to devote himself to God by hating the things that God hates and loving the things that God loves. And so it's important that we discuss what's going on in verses 19 through 22. 
Because generally, we are okay with talking about loving the things that God loves, right? But we understandably get a little uneasy when we start talking about hating things, and especially people, right? So what's the psalmist really getting at here? Well, throughout the psalms, the wicked, as they're described in 19, the wicked are understood to be those who reject God's gracious rule and dwell in their rebellion. In other words, they're marked by unrepentant sin against God and others. They're living fully in opposition to God. Now, the purpose of this prayer in Psalm 139 is not, it is not to foster hatred of human sinners. The hatred the psalmist expresses, it's not a malevolence, right? It's a holy aversion, a a divine dissatisfaction and discontentment with the wicked ways and dispositions that exist in a sinful world. And specifically here, Wickedness which has no value for human life. The men of blood in verse 19 that he references exist in direct opposition to the God described just a few verses previously with perfect knowledge from beginning to end so marvelously and wonderfully bringing forth each new life. These men of blood exist in direct opposition to that God. And so those who are faithful to the omniscient God should not want to be identified with the wicked like those described here. Our response, like the psalmist in verse 19, should be, depart from me. And the prayer in these verses is a prayer of loyal devotion to God. One that desires to have the same attitude as God toward wickedness. And so we see this deep, grief displayed by the psalmist, not for for any suffering of his own, but rather for the dishonor directed against God by the actions of the wicked. The faithful should hate the things that God hates, not with a selfish hatred that seeks personal vengeance, but one that's concerned for the glory of God and upholding the honor due his name. It's important to remember that it's possible for God to hate those who oppose him. We see that in Psalm 5. And at the same time, to be good or kind to all. We see that in Psalm 145.9. And so with that in mind, Christians, we too should desire to do the same. We should be people marked by grief over sin and evil that exists in the world. We should never applaud or uphold the wicked whose actions are in direct opposition to God, but rather we should pray and ask God to deal justly with all wickedness and evil. And friend, even when that wickedness resides in us. And that's where this prayer of devotion from the psalmist ultimately concludes with a heartfelt desire for God to continue to search him, to know him, to try him and test him. He wants God to eliminate any evil in him that would keep him from walking in the ways of the Lord.
he has beheld the glorious, mind-blowing attribute of God's omniscience. And he's come out of the other side of this understanding to his own delight and awe, knowing that the only way that he will not be counted among the wicked is to humbly surrender to God's loving, all-encompassing, ever-present, careful, thoughtful, intimate knowledge of his soul. He throws wide the door of his heart and recognizes that he has to trust in the Lord fully to be the only one that can make him worthy of relationship with the holy God. So friends, this is the perfect prayer for every one of us, every one of us to make our own today. If you're not a Christian, but something about Psalm 139 has caused you to want to look more closely at the God of the Bible, this prayer in verses 23 through 24 is for you. Or perhaps you feel like you're ready to submit your life to Jesus and to live every day delighting in him and being devoted to him, then this prayer is for you as well. Or Christian, perhaps you've seen the Lord's goodness in knowing all about you in a fresh way this morning. Maybe that sparked some fresh delight and devotion in your soul. And I'm certain that for all of us, there's some level of need to stop fighting God from searching and knowing us. There's some selfish, grievous ways in us that the Lord desires to lead us away from and into his ways. So Christian, beloved child of God, this prayer is for you today. And it was primarily intended for you. Because the all-knowing God knows you. And he knows everything that you need. And he stands ready today to give good gifts to his children. So friends, all of us, go to him today. He will hear. Seek him. He will listen. Let's pray together. I want to take a moment for you just to have a moment of silent prayer for yourself. Maybe take up the words of verses 23 and 24 and turn them over in your heart. Ask the Lord to search and know. I'll give you just a moment. Gracious God, search us now. Know our hearts. Sort through and understand our thoughts as only you can. 
as you see our wickedness, our grievous ways, God, lead us in your ways instead. Turn our hearts and our paths toward you, knowing that the path going away from you is always leading to destruction. Lord, we pray that we would consistently behold you and your glory as the all-knowing God. As we are ever before your eyes, put that truth ever before ours. And in response to your glorious nature, may we delight in you and in your ways and devote ourselves fully to you and you alone. Amen.